Welcome to an inspiring message from Awaken City Church. For more information about us, visit awakencity.com.au. This morning, we're going to dive deep, hopefully, into the Word. Um, you forgive me if I sit. I turned 40 in the last couple of weeks and now my back has stuffed itself. <laughs> so I will sit so I don't um, fall. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah, last night I hurt my back. Albus hurt her shoulder, Kiva had a sore tooth. So now Bobby is the least disabled <laughs> in our family for now. Not many times he can say that, but he's gloating over his good health. And <laughs> but you know what? I really feel that I have a word from God and I'm hoping that it will translate well after uh, painkillers and a lot of sleep. And if I say anything, I can blame it on that. That wasn't right. <laughs> But I think it is. So we're going to go with notes today. So I'd love you to follow along with me. Can we pray before we start? Great. If you're still moving around, praying, um, not praying, paying for your tithes and offerings, that's fine, but I will start now. All right. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for today. I pray for your word, Lord, that it's going to be spoken with clarity, with strength and with the wisdom that you intended it to be, that my words would be yours, that anything that comes from me, Lord, that you would turn into you and it would be thrown to one side. Lord, that today we're looking at new ground. We're wanting to plant not only just new um, fruits and new trees, but we want to plant deep, Lord, here in our house, here at home and in our marketplace as well, Lord. And I thank you right now for each person that they're going to get something today and walk away with something to do, some work to do. In your name, amen. 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 Okay, so January is nearly over, which I know some people are sad about. And although it's a new year, it doesn't fully feel like it's geared up yet. Don't you think January is kind of your month that you you realise the new year has come, but you're easing back in. You're still doing the, you know, some people are in holiday mode, still on holidays. Some of us are going back into work. We might set some goals. We might look at our finances like Pastor Chris said, but it's a nice time. But it's a good time to reflect and plan for the year, I think, before you get really into the swing of things. So in church, we've been talking about this idea of new ground and you've heard other people speak on it and we all probably have a take on it. Now, you might have a picture of what that looks like. Can I give you mine? And this is a, um, probably a physical picture of what new ground is to me. Um, when I drive home, most of the time I'm driving home to Baldivis past the market gardens. Does anyone know the back of Baldivis where all those beautiful crops, stinky cabbages <laughs> uh, grow? But when I go past, sometimes I get to see when the field's been freshly ploughed. And what that looks like, the soil's been turned over and it's dark and it's fresh. It's ready to go. Okay, you know, it's ready to be planted in. There's nothing old left. The weeds have been removed. Anything that shouldn't have been there is gone. And what needs to be added, that has happened too, to get it ready. It's literally like new ground. But it's not changed its location. It's not changed what it's made of even, but rather it's allowed change to be made to it. So that's what I want to look at today. Change being made to us so we can reproduce again. You may not change location this year. So your workplace, you may not change that. Your church, if you're planted here, that will not change. Your home, well, too bad, too sad. You've committed to them, haven't you? (laughs) The people that we love and adore, but that's our home. We've been planted there. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes new ground doesn't look like a new location. It might be just turning over that soil, starting again, removing what needs to be removed. All right? So it's a job. Market gardens are a hard job. I see people out there working in the sun and the heat and it's physical hard labour. It's not easy, it's repetitive and I'm sure sometimes they don't want to be there doing that. Probably wasn't their dream 
most of them who are working there. But it's, it's work and it pays the bills. So let's not muck around. I've got here, let's not pretend new year, new me. You know how people say that? Now, you know what? You are the going to be you. God created you to have that personality, to be who you are and to make some changes, yes. But you're not going to suddenly be someone you've never been before. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to be this elite sports person. I'm not going to love sport. I'm a husband. It's just not going to happen. But guess what I can do? I can build on the stuff that God's given me the gifts, the abilities, the talents, and I can take out all that stuff that God doesn't want there anymore. So let's embrace the new while understanding that God still requires us to be steadfast in the work that He calls us to do. The work will never go away, even when we're embracing this new and we're excited about this new year. There's work to be done. So when I looked at this idea of new ground, I I began thinking of this old to new. And I thought, who in the Word really symbolises old to new? And there's many characters in the Bible that do it. But I think the Apostle Paul does it very, very well. Now, he did transform his life, am I right? Like he came from, and we're going to go through what he did today. And I want us to look at Paul. And what does it mean for us to truly go from the old to the new? What does it mean for you personally? And for each person here, it will be different. There'll be some things we have in common, but most of it will be personal and God will speak to you about going from the old to the new and the changes that you need to make. We wanna keep the faith, but what does that mean? It means we ensure that it doesn't become mundane and religious. So the Apostle Saul was a very religious man. Sorry, before he was the Apostle, when he was Saul, he was a very religious man. And being religious means that you can come to church on a Sunday. You can do that every week. You can follow what the Bible says and become very lawful about it. But it can become mundane. You can be someone that follows everything to the letter of the law and almost get it perfect. But there's no new things happening in your life. You're not allowing God to speak to you and to make those changes. But you are doing what you should be doing. And Saul really believed that he was doing what God told him to do. Saul wasn't a heathen, he was a Jew. He was a practising Jew, he was a Pharisee. So we're gonna look at this guy that really thought he was doing the right thing and he really wasn't. So his transformation to Paul the Apostle was truly a new ground moment. And I hope you're ready. Now this word is mainly a synopsis of Paul's life. So it's like a snapshot of the most important moments. I've got spoilers, commentary, all that stuff that you get if you did a quick deep dive on the internet. And I'm gonna do it as quickly as I can today, but I think it's important to go into the word and look at it a little bit deeper. Okay, so Saul was born a Jew. He wasn't born a Gentile. He was born the chosen race. He was favoured in that way. He grew up to become part of the religious group called the Pharisees. Now, we look at the Pharisees as being a negative thing we, when we look at it. And we're going to look at that common mentality, that new way of looking at Pharisees. But in those times, the Pharisees were well respected. They knew not just spiritual law, but legal matters too. People went to them. They were known for, their, they were well read. They knew what the Jewish law was and they knew how to advise people so that people would go and listen to them preach in the synagogues. Now, these men were not the upper class. They weren't the Sadducees. They weren't the priests necessarily, but they definitely had good standing in the community. So Paul was one of those men. He really believed. Now, Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus necessarily as Messiah, but they believed in this idea of resurrection. They had this idea of what could come. But their main job was to keep the traditions of the fathers. So it wasn't what necessarily was written down. It was the old traditions. They wanted to make sure that everybody did as they should do, as they were supposed to do. They were adamant that everyone would practise the faith the same way. Good intentions, right? But when it gets taken over by legalism, suddenly we have robots and we have people that can't be who God's called them to be. 
So when he, um, people looked at him, like I said, they were looking at him to instruct them. He had this status in society. And in a Christian context, we look at this, we look at modern day Pharisees and you would say it's someone who follows the impulse to be seen as righteous by obeying certain laws while ignoring more important matters of the heart. These are the people that are like, Christians should not do this. Christians should not act like that. I can't believe someone said that. I can't believe someone did that. None of it's wrong. They're probably saying the right things, but they're not looking at the person's heart. Is that person struggling in this moment? Can I help them to repent? Can I help them get back on the path? Pharisees aren't worried about that. They're not worried about how people are or their status of salvation even. They're looking at the acts of people. They're looking at people are behaving as they should. Like us parents, you know when you go out and you're like, be on your best behaviour to your kid and you're like, I am going to be watching. That's what you expect in a restaurant. Do not do this. Do not do that. That's what the Pharisees were doing. So the modern day Pharisee as us as Christians, that's what we see them to be. Now, when you look through the Bible, you see Jesus often at odds with the Pharisees, often arguing. And the Pharisees weren't impressed with Him. They really believed that Jesus had come to do two things, to take away traditions of old and also to take people from the Jewish faith to really like get rid of the Jewish faith. Now we know Jesus wasn't necessarily trying to do those things. He definitely was trying to change culture, but they saw him as a threat. Now Saul was one of those people. So enter Saul into the picture. He is a Pharisee. He is someone that believes to the letter of the law, but he also doesn't like what these new Christians are beginning to do, the uprising that's happening. So he decides to go full, full pelt at these people. He begins to persecute them. And when we use this word persecution, we're going to look at it as it's meant to be looked at. Not these days when we feel we're being persecuted. Someone didn't like when I was a Christian. Someone said they didn't want to hang out with me. They don't want to come to church or they said they didn't believe in Jesus. We're not talking about that. We're talking about full on either physical persecution to death. Things like that were happening. Not being able to practice your faith, having to go underground. Christians were not accepted. So let's go to Acts 8. We're going to start at the beginning. Now, the first verse of Acts 8 says that Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And what we see here is Saul has gone forward and said, yep, I'll put my hand up and say that Stephen is a heretic. He's a Christian. He can be put to death. So he fully supported the death of Stephen. And we're going to look through some verses where not only did he witness these things, support them, he was eager for Christians to be persecuted. He took joy from it. It was good for him, which we see Paul as being often a cruel character, don't we, in this sense. So persecution starts to scatter the believers. Christians start to move. They start to realise we're under attack. So we're going to take it from verse 2, I think. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. In brackets, it says some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. So we see that Christians are feeling this. They're feeling the pain. Their brothers, their people that they love are being killed for their faith. And they're having to move homes and and locations to practice their faith. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Saul's active. He's not even just an aristocrat who sits there and judges people. He actually goes to their homes and physically pulls them out for being practising Christians. He's on a mission. He wants to do as much damage to this faith as possible in the hopes of restoring the Judaic faith. And this is just a small snapshot of who Paul was, religious and cruel. That's who I'd say Saul was at that time. But he was on a mission, like I said. He wanted to keep the faith devout and he wanted his ancestors to be honoured. 
wanted it to be really formal. But then something changes. Thank God for that. So in Acts 9, we see that Saul is going to go on a journey. He's on this road to Damascus. Has anyone seen paintings of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus? There's some really famous ones if you Google them. Anyway, I went on a rabbit hole trail yesterday into the art of what happened to Saul. And it's, it's amazing. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he says to them, I want letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of the followers of the way. Anyone that's found that believes in Jesus, I want them arrested. That's what he's saying. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So he's going to different cities and towns and he's planning on bringing them back to justice. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. So we know in this moment, he has no idea of who's speaking to him. He doesn't know Jesus, really. There's no relationship there. He's confused. You know that there's a powerful voice coming to him. And the voice says, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is Saul's transformation moment. The men with Paul around him, they stood speechless for they could hear the sound of someone's voice, but they couldn't see anyone. Saul picks himself up from the ground and when he opens his eyes, he's blind. So this transformation moment is not a good one in this moment. Suddenly he cannot see. So his companions lead him by the hand to Damascus and he remains there blind for three days and he doesn't eat or drink. Now we know in this moment that Paul is blind, he's suffering. He's not eating, he's not drinking. Something has happened that's profound for Paul, but he doesn't know what it is just yet. Now there was a believer in Damascus called Ananias and the Lord speaks to him in a vision and he calls him, he calls him by name, he says, Ananias. And he says, yes, Lord. See, Ananias knows the voice of of God. He knows who he is and he knows how to listen to him well. And God says to him, go over to Straight Street. I thought that was <laughs> Straight Street. <laughs> to the house of Judas. It's a good place to live, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> uh, when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. So we don't know a lot about Saul, but we know while he's blinded, while he's fasting, he's not drinking, he's praying to this God, this Jesus that he's just discovered. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands so that he can see again. So God's giving him a vision, Paul, that you will see again. This man's going to come. But Ananias isn't sure. He says to him, but Lord, I've heard so many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to the believers. And he is authorised by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So Ananias is in that moment of, if I go and pray, if I call on your name, Jesus, I could be arrested I could be killed. He knows the risks that he's facing. And he's saying that to God. Well, do you know this? And of course, God does know this. But the Lord says to him, go, because Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. Saul's mandate is huge when you think about how many people he's supposed to impact right now. Gentiles, Jews, kings, the people of Israel. He's got a big calling on his life but I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So although Saul is called for greatness, there's suffering that goes with that greatness. And he's already experiencing that through blindness, isn't he? He's already felt that firsthand. So Ananias went and he finds Saul and he lays hands on him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And I don't know if you remember, last time I preached, we talked about the gifts God gives us. And one of the first ones is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So Saul has, is regaining sight, but he's also gaining the Holy Spirit to work with, which is amazing. Instantly, something like scales fall from Saul's eyes and he regains his sight. Then he gets up and he goes and gets baptised. Now in baptism in the Western church, we make it a big process and sometimes we wait. But here we see that Paul immediately goes to get baptised. Afterward, he gets food. Afterward, he regains his strength. But his first thing is, I need to be baptised right now. The spiritual comes before the natural in this. Paul hasn't eaten for days and many of us would go to food, would go to drink first, wouldn't we? Maybe asleep because he's had visions, he's been blinded, he's tired at this point. But no, he goes to be baptised. Then we see him and he stays with the believers. He decides to stay with them for a few days and immediately he begins preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is indeed the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be like the greatest atheist we know, like a Richard Dawkins or someone coming into our church and beginning to say, Jesus is the Son of God. That's the impact that would have had. Saul was well known not to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and to persecute people that did believe it. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Now this is humans, this is us, isn't it? Going, well, why is he up there? What qualifies him? He just, a few days ago, three days ago, literally, he was stoning people to death. This is extreme. And yet now he's preaching the things that he said that we would die for. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And then the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. How amazing is that? He turned people's hearts towards Jesus. He was able to convince them because his preaching was that good. I love it. I'd love to get to that point. Your preaching is that good that people are like, yep, I cannot not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But yet that's the power that Saul's preaching had on people. But obviously it was the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying it was Paul. Now, Paul in his childhood, in his youth, we're going to go back a bit. He learned to work with his hands. And this is an important point, And we see this all throughout the Bible. It's mainly men, unfortunately. There's a few women scattered in there. But the men are the ones that are the focal points, the disciples who learn to work with their hands. His trade was tent making. Now, there's not a lot of use for that anymore, I would say, with leather and things like that. But he used to practice that even after he was in ministry. So what Paul would do is he would travel around to churches, but he could carry what he needed with him. He could make those tents. He could sell those tents and produce for himself. So Paul's literally taking new ground while working. He's a marketplace man who's in ministry. So for many of us that go, how do I do this? And how do I do that? Well, Paul made it happen for himself. He's still provided, he still used his hands. He used what God had given him, those skills. And he still went out and, and fulfilled the mandate that God called him to do. He became what he previously hated. How many of us have turned to Christ and gone, I don't even recognise myself. The things that I thought were lame before are now exactly what I'm meant to be doing. The things I never thought I would do. I tell my friends that, you know, I don't do that anymore. And they look at me like I'm a foreign, like an alien almost. This is who Paul is now. And it's believed that Paul is the most important person after Jesus in the history of Christianity. That's the legacy he left behind. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 13 are attributed to him that he wrote by himself and half of the rest are about him and the impact that he had on people. And when you look at this, 
Paul devoted his life to travelling to churches, writing to churches. Overall, he all he wanted was to make sure they were set up and staying on track, that their eternity was secure. He wasn't going to leave anybody behind. And when we think about this, what I want you to think about is that Paul was a murderer, really. Paul was someone that killed Christians. But when he came to Christ, that was gone. His old life, he truly left it behind. There was no shame. You don't see Paul mourning what he used to be or saying, well, I can't do that. God has not qualified me because I've done this and I've done that. Instead, he embraces this and he goes, you know what? I'm gonna get as many people to heaven as I can. So if you want to take new ground, guess what? You've got to leave the old behind. And that means leaving that shame of what you used to be or what you currently are even. And I know we come into church and we bring things with us, don't we? We bring sin, we bring that baggage, we bring disappointment and whatever else we're holding onto. But yet for us to take new ground, all of that has to go. Saul became Paul and it wasn't just a name change. It truly transformed his life. All right, I'll move these pages, this is weird. However, like I said, he's still moving. He's still using his trade while doing this. And like I said, we look at the disciples. We looked at even Jesus. They worked with their hands. They were trained tradies. They were carpenters, tent makers, fishermen. They were hard workers. This wasn't an easy job what any of them were doing, but they kept on doing it. They were not preachers in the church. Now, some of them would preach in the synagogue, yes, but they weren't waiting on an audience. This is very lovely. I can sit here with a pillow (laughs) and talk to you. You're ready to listen to me. This is not what these men were doing. They were travelling. And while they travelled, they would speak to whatever crowd came. They would talk to people about their faith. They were literally in the marketplace. Do you think all those people wanted to hear what they said? No, but it didn't stop them. They went and did it anyway. So you taking new ground is your workplace this year. And I really feel important. it's important to focus on our workplace. Is anyone changing jobs this year? So we've got two people, three, four. Okay, four. All right, Mike, five. <laughs> I'll let you in, you're a bit late. So five people out of a couple of hundred isn't many of us. Most of us are going back into the same workplace. So what I wanna say to you is you might not be called to leave, but you are called to see this new year as an opportunity to make your environment new. How can you do that? All of us, most of us work in an environment that isn't Christian, all right? That most people aren't Christians in that. It can become quite toxic when people don't have accountability and when people do whatever they wanna do. Has anyone experienced this? When there's no one to say, you know what? You don't talk like that or we don't treat people like that or that's not the right way to be. Things can get very chaotic very quickly. Taking new ground can be setting standards for yourself that you haven't engaged in before. Now, for me, it could be something like, no, this is not for me. I don't know why I said that. I don't swear. (laughs) But I've put on here, it could be something like, I will stop swearing at work. Now, I've seen this with people that I know before. I know you can't swear as a teacher. That just doesn't fly. (laughs) Well, it might. The kids would probably like it, but, you know, I'd probably get fired at the same time. So swearing at work is a big thing. And I've heard, I remember my dad doing this. He was insistent that because he worked with men like tradies, working with their hands, a lot of swearing is happening, a lot of cursing. And he didn't want to do that anymore and he stopped it. He became, he didn't say to people, I'm stopping swearing. Guess what? I don't swear everyone. Look at me, I will not swear anymore. But he just stopped it. He realised that curse words weren't appropriate for him anymore as a Christian, that he was going to set that standard. I will tell people that I'm a Christian and I won't make it weird. 
That might be something that you're setting in your environment. That people start to realise around you, hey, that guy is saved. You might drop it into conversation. You might start talking about what you do on the weekends, which is church. When someone says, what did you do on the weekend? I went to church. Not I did my shopping, I did some errands, I had a bit of a rest, went and watched a movie, but I went to church. It could be stopping gossiping. When people come to you and want to talk about people or say all the stuff that's wrong with your work environment, instead you're going to turn it into something like, yeah, but it could be this, couldn't it? Or we could see it this way and I can start to change the environment I'm in. So that's new ground in your workplace. But another one is your home. Now we often think our home is what it is. This is the home I've got. This is what is given to me. But our home is the environment we have the greatest influence over. It's the easiest one. Not the easiest. No, that's wrong. Probably the hardest one to change. But it's the one we have the most control over is what I'm saying. Because you're able to do it yourself. There's not a boss saying, hey, you can't say this. You can't do that. So what does your home look like? What are those things that you go, you know what? I don't want to take this into 2024. This is old ground for me. I want our home to look like this. I want it to sound like that. So for me, it might be something like we talk, Bobby and I talk about less time on our devices. It might be playing worship music every day. That's something I want in my home. What is it that you want to change? And is it something big? Because often the big things are what sticks us and we go, we can't do that. But can you break it down? Can you attack it each day and make small changes to achieving what you want? A big goal of mine, I'll be honest with you, is a peaceful home. And I think about that a lot. I think, what is a peaceful home? It's huge, isn't it, when I say that? It's very broad, it's non-specific. What does that actually mean, a peaceful home? So if I want a peaceful home, what is it going to take for me to get it? Less yelling, more worship, kinder tones, more help from Bobby and the kids. (laughs) He's on the front row today, so I can't say a lot about him. Basically, (laughs) more Jesus. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm trying to be more polite. It's new, new year, new ground. I'll be more positive. More Jesus needs to come into my home for it to be peaceful. I am in control of what I bring into my home. My husband is in the same control and my children are too. We all have responsibility of the ground that we're bringing and the ground that we're changing. It's no good for me to say, I've always been a yeller. I always yell at my kids and that's just, they just annoy me. Yeah, they do. And they're going to keep on annoying me until they move out. But is that okay to just accept what was always there? Is it okay to accept it because you were brought up like that? Is it okay to say, well, my parents did that. My grandparents did that. No, it really isn't. Saul was brought up as a Jew. He learned to be a Pharisee. His family supported that. I don't think they were happy when he became a radical Christian who was preaching Jesus as Messiah. It was exactly what he was taught not to do. And sometimes we are counterculture. We have to bring into our homes. When your friends go, my kids fight all the time. See, Bobby keeps saying to me, yeah, my workmates say our kids fight all the time. This is normal. I don't want to be normal. I don't want my children to be normal. I want us to have a peaceful home. Yes, there's going to be conflict, but we are not going to be fighting constantly over who won Monopoly, why there's chicken for dinner, whose shoes are they on the floor? Do you know what I'm saying? I don't have to accept that and neither do you. (laughs) There's a bit of a rant. See, when I'm in pain, I get get like this. I get ranty and I'm like, you know what? There's so much I could say. So we'll stick to my notes now. But do you know what? A peaceful home is not just for me. It's not for my sanity. It's part of it, but it's not. 
It provides less stress for everybody. So for my husband, if he has less stress, he goes to a work environment, he knows how to create a peaceful work environment because he's done that at home already. My children can navigate school peacefully. They can navigate relationships in a productive, healthy way. Then when they have children, they won't scream and yell at their kids. Their home won't be full of chaos, but instead it will be peaceful because they've been taught to do that. So I'm encouraging you to look at the old and say, what have I accepted in my life that I don't have to anymore? Because if Saul can be a killer, if he can stone people to death and then he can preach that Jesus is the Messiah for all, even the Gentiles, then you can have a peaceful home. You can have a positive work environment. You can have a love, loving marriage. You can have those things if that's what you want to do. So back to these market gardens. So we, you know, I was talking about driving by them. This sounds random, but it it will get there. You know, when we drive by them, there's one that's been left at the moment. And Alba's commented on it twice. Alba is Bobby's uh, clone, I say in a lot of ways. Not the most detail-oriented person on the earth, but has noticed this field twice and it's bugging her. Like, why has that been left? The plants are starting to brown. They don't look very nice. They're obviously not going to use them. They're not producing anything. So she's asked me a couple of times, like I know everything about market gardening. And I'm like, no, well, I don't know. I honestly don't know why that's been left. I assume soon it won't, won't be there anymore. But anyway, she comments and she says they're dying. They're not even green anymore. And I say, yep, they'll probably get rid of them soon. That's what I keep saying. But if I'm honest, they're an eyesore. They don't look nice to drive by. They aren't producing anything. And now they're taking up space that could be used by something better. This is a metaphor for our lives as Christians. What have you planted that's now a problem or it's just in the way? Could it be as simple as a bad habit? Like (laughs) daily cans of Coke Zero. (laughs) Not me, of course, but that's a small problem but it's a bad habit and I've planted that and I've sowed it well. Or is it something bigger for you? Like unforgiveness towards your spouse. You just can't get over something that they've done or unwillingness to change. I do not want to change this behaviour. I am happy doing what I want to do. Your spouse has told you, your friends have told you, your boss has told you it's a problem and you are unwilling to change. What have you planted? What's getting in the way? Because all of us will have one thing and I can guarantee you right now, if you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, He'll tell you what that one thing is. The key to Paul's transformation was this. He previously planted his life on the knowledge that righteousness was based on the law. If we keep the law, we are righteous. But then he learned. He'd learned it his whole life, hadn't he? He'd studied it, he'd memorised it. He, He was all in this belief. He practised it so much that he preached it even to death and he would have died for his faith. His transformation came though when he uprooted those old beliefs and he replaced them with this. And this is the idea that righteousness is only based upon the death of Christ. And what that means for us is, it's not a new idea, is it? Our whole faith is centred around the death of Christ. But you've got to remember back then, Christianity was new. So to centre your faith around a man who could take your sins was foreign to people because they had lived by this idea of if, if I can do the right thing and do all these things and line it up and give my sacrifices, then God will see me as righteous. So now we're looking at this new idea that a man can take everything that we thought was shameful, all those things we've talked about today, and he can make them new. He can take them away, literally take them away. Because of this, the impossible becomes possible. 
That's what Jesus does for us. When we talk about taking new ground, that can mean literally anything. So what I want to say to you is when we say we want to see thousands of people saved through the cross of Jesus, that is made possible. When I say that, um, once again, this is not me. When we say that we want to kick alcohol addiction, (laughs) that's been in our family generation line for hundreds of years, the cross of Jesus makes that possible. When you say something like, I want to have a healthy, thriving church of disciples of Christ, the cross of Jesus makes that possible. The cross of Jesus makes everything possible. And isn't that what the supernatural is? So what He does is the super and we do the natural. So God might be saying to you, you know what, this year you are not going to drink alcohol anymore. And you know what, He will supernaturally help you do that. But you've got to do the work and not actually pour yourself a drink. (laughs) Okay, if God's saying to you, stop criticising your husband on the front row, then I've got to shut my mouth, don't I? Okay, God will enable you to do things. He will send your Holy Spirit to help you, but He won't actually physically do it for you because our free will still comes into play. By his own account, Paul was the best Jew and the best Pharisee of his generation, but he claimed to be the least apostle of Christ. So he went from boasting of everything he could do, all the evil deeds, to being, I'm the least now because of what Christ has done in me. He became all about Jesus, all about showing people the transformation in His life. 2024 is that year for us when we take new ground. It's not because of us, it's because of Him. And we're able to show people what Jesus can do. If you want people to come to church, if you want people to get saved, they need to see Jesus in you because there's no attraction otherwise. Why would I get up on a Sunday morning to come to your church if you are like everybody else? If you complain about your husband, if you drink as much as I do, if you swear at work, if you complain about every little thing, what is Jesus doing for you? If you don't know what needs to change in your life, it's very, very simple, ask God. If He doesn't tell you, ask your spouse or ask someone that's going to be honest with you and I'm sure they'll tell you. But it may not be something you want to hear. Paul suffered for Christ, even though he had this transforming moment, even though he's known as this great, giving a great legacy and writing these letters. He's famous, but he suffered physically. He suffered emotionally and spiritually. He did not have it easy. So 2024 is not going to be easy, but it's going to be new. And when those new, that new ground gets planted in, you're going to feel hope coming. Once you see things sprouting, once you see your children getting along, just that little bit better. Once you see your workmates going, I could go to them and get some help. You will start to see hope rising. Can I encourage you to give everything to Him? And today I want you also to think about what you need to lay down. What are those ugly, dead plants that you've had there for years that people look at and go, that's not, that's not a God. That's not godly anymore. That's not what I want people to see in me. What is it? What can you lay down today? You know, this moment here, we talk about this altar moment and we know it's carpet. Look, we're not trying to fool anyone here. But we know that when you come here, you're making a physical commitment to saying, hey God, I wanna give this to you now. And giving something to God means true repentance and that means laying it down. That means you're not gonna pick it back up. So today, can I encourage you to use our altar moment to lay something down in exchange for what you wanna pick up? for something new. So if it's something physical, you know, if it's an addiction, if it's a sin or something like that, you can replace it with something good. If it's criticism, you can replace it with kind words. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Like God doesn't ask us to give everything up and strip our whole personalities. He's going to replace it with the fruits of the Spirit and the good stuff. Saul became Paul. But guess what? Paul was just as dynamic and as powerful as Paul, as he was as Saul. If you read his letters, no one had the ability to tell people off like Paul, to tell them where they were going wrong, to preach and to bring people back up. He was a strong personality. He wasn't someone that just sat in the background and God used that. So if you're saying, well, God's not gonna use who I am, that is rubbish because God created who you are and He wants to use your gifts and abilities for Him. So if you're someone that struggles with criticism, you can replace it with kind words because you're meant to speak. You're obviously a good communicator. If you can criticise well, you can be kind well too. If you're a funny person and you use sarcasm constantly, which I love a good sarcasm, but God can use your jokes. He can use your humour. Don't think I've got to be boring now that I'm a Christian. God will use you. God will use your hands. Paul was a tent maker. If you were here at Christmas time, you would have seen all the set design and the things that happened around here. Did everyone see that? Anthony on the front row here made most of those with his own hands. Now, as far as I know, Anthony's self-taught. Is that right? Pretty much? Yep, you didn't go, you're not a carpenter, you're not trained as a tradie in that way? No. He's used what he's got. He's used a gift and ability that God has given him and he's created something for us all to enjoy, for us to see God's creation through what He's doing with His hands. So can I encourage you? I'm a big fan of education and teachers always say this. People go, it's because you're a teacher. Now I'm not saying I'm a big fan of school or that everyone's meant to be educated through school, but all of you can educate yourself in some way. All of you can use what God has given you in your hand to influence the Kingdom. Whatever you choose to do, think of it as giving it back to God. Jesus was a carpenter. He made tables and chairs for people, but yet He was also the Son of God. So today we're going to look at these things. We're going to look at, I want to stand up, but I won't. So I'll lean forward. Today I want you to think about this, that Jesus gave up His life for us because He knew that He needed to be that sacrifice. He knew the law needed to be gone. He knew that you and I would suffer that we would come under shame and condemnation of all the things we've done. And Saul is a perfect example of that. If the devil, we don't talk about the devil and the enemy a lot, but if he can keep you in that space, he will. He will keep you under that shame of what you are, what you were, the influence you had, the things you did to people, the type of parent you were, the type of employee, maybe the friends or the spouse or whatever you failed at in the human sense, he will use that. Whereas Jesus says, I can use that and I can make something beautiful out of it. Which I think is the greatest gift to be given, isn't it? To say, you know what, all the worst things I've done, Jesus will use them. He will turn them into something good, green and harvest from it. Can I pray with you today? And as I pray, I really want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things. The things He wants you to plant and the things He wants you to remove. There's the two things that we take away today. Lord, I thank You for each person here. I thank You for their faith. And Lord, for those of the, those out there that don't have faith, can I ask You right now to reveal Yourself to them? Like You did on the road to Damascus, could You give them a moment where they hear Your voice so clearly that they don't doubt that You are real, that Jesus, You were as real as me sitting up here, that they would hear Your voice and understand that You have so much more for them. 
Lord, I'm asking for those that have faith already, that are going into 2024 with hope that things could be different, that You'll reveal to them, number one, Lord, the things that they are meant to plant, the good things that are meant to come from their life, the influence that they're meant to have in the marketplace and in their homes and in our church. And then those, Lord, that need to pull up some really bad weeds, some old ground, Lord, that need to turn over that soil, that You will encourage, Lord, that You'll put Your finger on those hard things and that those hard things will become easy in You, that the supernatural will come and that they will truly be able to give them up today. I thank You for a repentant heart. I thank You that we turn our hearts towards You and we are sorrowful, Lord. We truly are repentant of all the things that make You sad. But today, Lord, I'm asking for You to help us as Awaken City 2024, that we walk into this new ground with a boldness that we haven't had before, with that hope that I can do this through You, that all things, Lord, are possible through You. In Your Name, Amen. Amen and Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. We hope it has blessed you. If you would like to find out more about Awaken City Church, visit awakencity.com.au.